Let's turn to the Gospel of Luke. I have a message heavy on my heart this morning. Not because I fear for you, but because I fear for me. Sometimes when I open the Word of God, I come to passages that just strike me all the way through. And it's difficult to preach for a number of reasons, primarily because I know that I am guilty myself standing before you. And see, that's the way the Word of God should work and does work, is that we come before Him and we realize that He is God, that His name is above every name, and that He is Lord. And then when we look into the perfect law of liberty and shining back is a true image of our decrepit self, I realize how short I fall. And this is one of those passages that exposes me and I pray exposes you that the Lord's work can be done in our hearts. Let's stand to our feet out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter number 6 and verse number 43 For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For, thorns, for of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of a good treasure out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built a house and digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently upon the house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of the house was great." And this morning, I would like to preach a message entitled, The Most Convicting Question. And it's found in one verse, verse number 46. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Father, I pray that you would find tender hearts this morning. Lord, I ask that you would give clarity to my mind and to my words that I would not stumble across my tongue this morning. But Father, that you would give me a measure of grace that I do not deserve. That grace would flow out of your Holy Spirit that you might be the one ministering both to me and to the audience here this morning. 
Father, I pray that you would help me to communicate your truth to these that are gathered as well as those that are watching by live stream, either now or in the future. And Lord, I pray that you would cut through and convict our hearts and draw us near. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It is so easy to compare ourselves to the world. Oh, it's the great simplicity of Christianity. We can live by these ingrained moral truths that are acceptable culturally and, and morally within the fabric of our, of our society. And we compare those out compare ourselves to those outside of the church and we can feel, quite frankly, quite comfortable. We can compare our marriages, our, our families, our demeanor, our language, our entertainment, our values. We can compare our priorities and our investments to the rest of the world and come away feeling uh, rather good about ourselves. Oh, but Jesus had a way Jesus had a way of cutting straight to the truth of the matter. Jesus had a way of approaching men and women and finding the very foundation, the root of the issue, and, and pointing it out and, and moving away every bit of soil which has hidden the problem and exposing it and shaking the, the branch until all of the dirt falls from the root and everything that is unrighteous and unholy is then exposed. Oh, to the Pharisee, he calls them whited sepulchers from the outside. Yes, they look so holy, but in the inside, they were so corrupt. And his language, once again, cut to the very issue of the problem. And as I, if I could speak just as a man reading God's word, I come to verse number 26 and I find myself inescapably convicted. For out of my lips have flowed many times the phrase, Lord, Lord. Oh, we say bless the Lord, praise the Lord, thank the Lord. We use words like hallelujah, amen, and God bless you. And our vocabulary is intact and we believe that it even distinguishes us from the rest of the world. But it is that company to whom the Lord is addressing his speech, his sermon here this morning. It is not those who do not profess his name as Lord, but instead it is those to whom frequently they call his name Lord. And notice the capitalization in both instances, capital L, capital L, they even know that they are addressing not just Lord generally, but Lord specifically. And as I come to you this morning, and I am seeing the, the coming of that Christmas holiday, my heart wells up with, with pure and unadulterated worship. I want to worship the King. I want to come like those wise men with gold and frankincense and myrrh. I want to come bearing my gifts. I want to come making sacrifice and giving homage to my Lord. But before I come, I must find myself cleansed. And I don't think the cleansing is just a matter of what we do with our hands or say with our words. Cleansing is a matter of the heart. 
And the Lord Jesus Christ strikes the heart of the matter right here. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? We read those words that he is, if I've already said twice and was so beautifully sung a moment ago, that he is wonderful. And is our Jesus not wonderful? Oh, he is from everlasting to everlasting. He is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. He is not just omnipresent everywhere, but he is present here specifically for where two or three are gathered in my name. There am I in the midst of them. And here the Lord Christ is present with us now, listening to every word and every thought and intent of our hearts. And he is here to bestow his grace and his mercy. And oh, what better day definition of wonderful do we need than to stand in his majestic presence and say wow what a glorious wonderful God not only is he wonderful however that but the Bible says that he is counselor he is the one that that guides us and he is the one that instructs us He is the one whose wisdom is perfect and pure and and he is the one whose counsel will never fail. We believe that his word is inspired, breathed from the very, very voice and the very mouth of God. We believe that it is perfect in, in all of its features. We believe that it's been preserved in all of its generations. We believe that it's pure in every utterance of it. We believe that his counsel is just and that it is a light into our feet and a a, a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And the Lord calls us to study His Word, to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing His Word. Why? So that He can counsel us and guide us with it. Not only that, but He's the mighty God. He is robed in glory and sitting upon his throne and he cannot be overthrown and there will not be a re-election. He is God and the word of God tells us that besides him is none else. He is God par excellence. There is no comparison to anything in this world or the next to our God for he is mightier than the highest archangel. He is stronger than the massive amount of, of force that we could gather here on this earth either by personnel or by nuclear power. He trumps all, for he is the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. He is the great I Am, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. And sometimes we still don't obey him. You see, this is a tension that we all manage in our lives. And even the Apostle Paul managed this tension as he says in Romans chapter number 7, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. The apostle Paul exclaims, Oh wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And you see that tension even existed in the apostle Paul between the glories, the counsel, the wisdom, the law, the statutes, the judgment, the guidance of God and the own and this fleshly desire to do that which is pleasing to our own selves. And Jesus asks a simple question 
that it is healthy and good for us all to ask of ourselves this morning. For I believe on this Sunday after Thanksgiving that most, if not all of us who are gathered here have called on the name of the Lord. Perhaps you've even prayed this morning either over your breakfast in your time of devotion or in Sunday school. You've called upon His name. We declare ourselves to be Christians, to be those who are walking in like manner as our Savior. But nonetheless, He addresses us with the most convicting question, and why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? I find that no one can stand unconvicted at the question of verse number 46. The Apostle Paul could not stand without conviction. I cannot stand without conviction. You cannot stand without conviction. This question is intended to accomplish some things among God's people. And here are three things that this question exposes. The first thing that this question seems to accomplish is this, is that it incriminates the hypocrite. Hypocrisy is such a comfortable thing when it's not exposed. Because on the outside, everything seems just fine. Oh, the disciples were absolutely perplexed when Jesus condemned the Pharisees because these men were righteous men. In other words, their hypocrisy was unexposed on the outside. Their formalities, their practices, their words, their deeds. Oh, everything looked, looked pristine and above board. It seemed that they were meeting the letter of the law in every facet, in every way. Nonetheless, the Lord Jesus Christ reserves His harshest words for these men, for these men who had everything together on the outside, but inside they were woefully lacking. They're woefully lacking. And as I turn the, the impact to the darts and the arrow of this verse upon us this morning by the power of the Holy Ghost, may we allow the incriminating question to convict the hypocrisy that lies within our own heart. You see, there's a little hypocrite that lies within all of us. As we work so hard, we work so hard to come across as if everything is just fine and we tie our ties and we put on our dresses and we fix our hair and we change our vernacular and we carry our Bibles and we stand when we're supposed to stand and we sit when we're supposed to sit. But oh, the Lord is looking for those who worship Him, not just in truth, but also in spirit. Oh, it seems that he's looking for the heart of the matter. For in the very, in the verse that precedes, verse number 26, it closes with this statement, for of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. God is looking for our heart. And this question, if we're honest about the many infractions that we have against the times that God would have us to obey and we disobey, that God would have us to act and we sit still instead of moving forward, we find that hypocrite that lives in every single one of us. We don't give like we ought to give because we don't give out of the abundance of our heart. 
We don't witness to others as the Lord has called us to be a witness to others because fear is greater than faith inside of our heart. Uh, we don't make sacrifices necessary to preserve the, the purity of our homes the way that we ought to because, quite frankly, we enjoy the convenience of our entertainment. You see, this question incriminates the hypocrite. Why is hypocrisy so easy, by the way? It's so easy because in order for hypocrisy to exist, all we need is complacency. We don't need to be passionate about our hypocrisy. It's not like in order for this facade to exist on the outside and this corruption to exist on the inside. It's not like we have to do a great deal of work in order to accomplish this feat. For it seems like this is more common than uncommon in all of us. Oh, it's so easy to spend all of our time in the preparation of the outside and none of our time in preparation to the inside. And why are we so comfortable for that to exist? Because we have become so, so complacent. Oh, it's something we haven't even really thought about and we've not been challenged about either from the pulpit or in our own Bible reading. Perhaps from the pulpit because we're not listening or because I'm not preaching. Or perhaps in our own Bible study because we're not reading or because we are not allowing ourselves to be yielded to the Holy Spirit of God. You see, it takes zero work to play the role of a hypocrite. Oh, but this question, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and doest thou not the things that I say? It cuts straight and it indicts the hypocrite. Hypocrisy is easy because of its complacency. Hypocrisy is easy because of its convenience. The convenient matter is we care far more what everybody else thinks than what we care about what the Lord thinks. Why is it so easy to sin in secret? Oh, but to have that sin drug out here on this stage and declared openly and indicted publicly, boy, that would be a horse of a different color. And what is the difference of those two things? In the first one, only God knows. And in the second one, everybody else seems to know. And why is it that we are so comfortable sinning in private before God, but we are so uncomfortable sinning publicly in front of others? It's because we have fall to the convenience of our hypocrisy that what's done in secret we feel is secret, but the Bible so clearly describes the fact that be sure your sin will find you out. That there is no hidden place with God. There is a secret place, but there is no hidden place. There is a place where in secret you can get alone with the Lord and commune with God and not allow others to know, but there is no hidden place where you can hide your sins away and never find them discovered. Oh, it's an extremely convenient thing to maintain our hypocrisy. But this question, what does it do? It incriminates the hypocrite. Oh, it's amazing to me that each time, that each time this double Lord phrase is used in the New Testament, it is a very negative thing. It is. Look with me in verse number 46. The Bible says, And why call ye me Lord, Lord? Going back to our vernacular, we're very good at using all the right words. Lord, Lord, I said it twice. I said it twice. 
But every time that, mention, that is mentioned in the New Testament or in the entire Bible, it shows up five times and every time it is negative. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy, thy name done, done many wonderful works? Matthew chapter 25, verse number 11. Afterward came also other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Luke 13, 25. When once the master of the house is risen up and has shut the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock on the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he will answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Every single time that phrase, Lord, Lord, is used in our, in our King James Bibles in this way, it is always greeted with, I don't know you. And I just want to challenge us all together this morning. That instead of playing defense this morning and trying to convince ourselves that we are okay and our relationship with the Lord is, is fine and there's, there's nothing wrong, could we just allow our heart to be tender enough to perhaps allow the Holy Spirit to convict us and expose the fact that perhaps at times we are the problem? Not covering it up with a veneer of our vernacular, but instead we realize that there is someone knocking on that door. Knocking on that door. By the way, I don't believe that he's knocking on the door of your facade. I believe he's knocking on the door of your heart. He's interested in your actions and we'll get to that in just a moment. But those actions need to flow out of the sincerity of our heart. And this questions, it, it pierces through, it examines our actions. Why is it that we say, Lord, Lord, but we don't find ourselves doing the things that he has asked us to do and, and ceasing from the things that he has prohibited us for, for us to do. And when we come to this, we are reminded that if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. But let it be love first that drives the train and not actions trying to keep up a facade of hypocrisy. Oh, this is why it's the most convicting question. Because it incriminates the hypocrite. The next thing that I notice that this question does, it doesn't just incriminate the hypocrite, but it instructs the righteous. It instructs the righteous the hypocrite and those that have a hardened heart against the Lord will come to verse number 26, believing themselves to be better than they actually are, will read the verse like this. And the hypocrite will read it. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? The hypocrite will say, I wonder who he's talking about. The righteous will say, it's me, isn't it, Lord? It's me, isn't it, Lord? Lord, you're talking about me. Lord, you're talking about the fact that sometimes, sometimes you call me to live pure and holy and I don't. Lord, you're pointing out the fact that there are, there are times where you, have, where you have convicted my heart and 
and try to remove sin and pride and jealousy and bitterness and hatred and, and a heart that is unforgiving. You've tried to remove those things from my, from my heart, from my life. And Lord, I have not done it. You see, the response of the hypocrite and the response of the righteous is totally different. You know, we have a, a habit of, of when messages like this are preached, of being so fearful to come to the altar. Why is it that the hypocrite is so fearful to say that we are not good enough to be with God? Oh, that is the words of a righteous man, however. The words of Paul, oh, wretched man, not that you are, but oh, wretched man, that I am. Oh, yes, it is a beautiful thing as we come upon this Christmas holiday to see the warmth and the glow of that manger. But oh, it means nothing if we don't see the wickedness and depravity of our own heart. That's why it had to be by grace. That's why it had to be by mercy for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And I am thankful that this phrase is preserved with power on the pages of my Bible, not just to indict my hypocrisy, but also to instruct the righteousness that I desire to live after. In other words, as I come to it and I realize that I am so guilty, I come to God and I say, what we do matters to God. Our behavior, our language, our conduct, our image. We live in this modern progressive era of Christianity which believes that it is a matter of the heart only and not a matter of our works and our deeds. Yes, that is true of our salvation, but it should not be said of our life. The Apostle Paul writes to those in Corinth and he speaks of fornication. He speaks of, of, of wickedness in their, in, their, in their assembly. And he says, let it not be once named among you. And he's not talking about issues of the heart. He's talking about issues of the conduct. Oh yes, you see, there's two sides of this. There's the hypocrite who tries to keep all of his actions in, in correct standing so that everyone can see him and think that he's a wonderful person, but he's corrupt inside. Then there's the person who does have a, 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 at least a glimmer of a genuine desire for the things of the Lord, but you fail to allow those things to take root and grow fruit on the branches of your life. Is that not the, the subject matter of the verse that came before for a good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is good. Oh, that we would bring forth that treasure. You see, this is instruction for the righteous just as well as it is incrimination for the hypocrite. But what other instruction can we find here? If you would, look with me at the very next verse. It's no mistake nor accident that verse number 46 and verse 47 and 48 are paired so beautifully together. Let's just pay close attention. <laughs> and why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Listen to the instruction that flows out of that, that question. Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you whom he is like. 
you that have a desire, a thirst for righteousness this morning. Let's turn our hearts towards the instruction that he's about to give. In verse number 48, the righteous man, he is like, he is like a man which built a house and digged deep. Oh, that man would dig deep. It seems like in construction, as we look at these houses that so beautifully adorn the neighborhoods here at Knoxville, we look on the outside, we see them in sometimes uh, great amazement and desire. I wish we could live there. We see these palatial mansions and imagine what it would be like to enter the double wooden doors on the front and, and see the spiraling staircase to the second and third story. We walk into the vast, expansive kitchen and see massive islands and ovens and granite and beautiful pendant lighting. We walk into the living rooms and feel the warm glow of the fireplace and the comfortable couches. And we realize that this is a place of, of gathering, of, of enjoyment, of entertainment, of food, of pleasure, of comfort. Oh, but how many of us dig down and inspect the foundation? And the instruction of the righteous is this. That yes, your house may one day have those expansive kitchens and, and beautifully, ordinant, um, beautifully ordinant family rooms and living rooms. But what is most important is what lays at the foundation. For he is like a man which built a house and digged deep. And laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently upon the house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. And the instruction of the righteous is, is this, if I could give it to you one step at a time. The, the instruction of the righteous is this, first off, that the righteous must take the discipline to dig deep. To dig deep personally in God's word. To allow the Holy Spirit to dig deep personally into our hearts that we would stand naked and open before Him and say as the psalmist, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Dig deep, Lord. Oh, don't just settle for the fact that we don't fall into the most heinous and popular sins within the world today. But Lord, dig deep and point out every little wicked nuance that lies within the, the recesses of our heart, hidden away from the public eye. And Lord, convict us of those things. Dig deep, Father. Not only does he say dig deep, but he says that even when we dig deep and we find that rock and we begin to build our house and our life on the foundation of that rock, the instruction of the righteous is given because not all will still be easy. It's always been interesting to me that in both 40, verse 48, the house that is built on a rock, verse 49, the house that is built on sand. Both of those houses, a storm came. Both of those houses, a flood rose. Both of those houses are described this way in the Gospel of Luke. That the stream beat vehemently upon the house. I love that word, vehemently. It's descriptive. It means violently. It means unforgivingly. It means holding no power or force back. 
It means the pouring out of brutality. And that storm mustered every ounce of power against both houses. Let the righteous be instructed this morning that even those who have dug deep and built their foundation on that rock, storms will come. Adversity will show its ugly head and invade our lives, our homes, our families, our occupations. They will take what we thought was so secure that we were taking it for granted and they will snatch it from our very clutches for we were trusting too much in it. And that storm comes and that rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. But let the righteous be instructed that the difference is this, is not the fact that the storm was, was moved away from the righteous, but instead the Bible says that when the stream beat vehemently upon the house of the righteous, that it could not shake it, for it was founded upon the rock. Let the righteous be instructed that yes, it is work to dig deep. Yes, it is uncomfortable to allow the Holy Spirit of God to convict us by this question. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and doeth not the things which I say? But when we surrender ourselves to him, we are placing one more block on that rock of Jesus Christ. We are securing ourselves to a foundation which cannot be moved in this world or the next. And we are placing all of our trust on him, knowing that he will care for us, knowing that he will see us through, knowing that he will guide us every step of the way. Oh, God, help us as we examine the most convicting question. Why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I say? That question should indict our hypocrisy. It should instruct our righteousness and it should inform the offender. You see, all these are connected. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? He first gives a description of those who, after being convicted of the verse, respond, dig deep, lay the foundation upon the rock. But then he also describes what happens to those who do not. Verse 49, But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth, against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell. And one of the most Striking and desperate phrases of the whole Bible. And the ruin of that house was great. We cannot pass the gates of verse number 46 and allow our hearts to go unaffected. For those are the ones that Jesus was seeking to reach to open their eyes, to soften their hearts, that His work might be done. But He gives a warning to those who do not heed His word. Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings, but what about those who do not? 
He says that destruction, destruction might come, no. Destruction will come. Destruction is coming. But he that, verse 49, but he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell. He does not believe and does not teach that destruction is, is something that may possibly happen. It is something that absolutely will happen. You may say, well, who is he talking about here? Is he talking about a, a group of people? Is he, is he talking about someone that just lived in his day and age. No, no, no. Verse 49, but he that heareth and doeth not, notice this, is like a man. He's speaking to humanity. He's speaking to men. He's speaking to women. He's speaking, if I could say it the way the Bible does in many other occasions, he that hath an ear, let him hear. Oh, and sometimes I want to reach into my own chest and, and shake and stir my own heart for my mind to say, do you hear that? Because my heart seems so cold and indifferent. Sometimes I desire to leap over this pulpit. Maybe one day I will. Sometimes I desire to leap over this pulpit and crawl into those pews and shake you by your shoulder and say, do you hear these words? Destruction is coming. It is unavoidable. It is inescapable. It is not something that might happen. It is something that will happen. And whom will it happen to? It will happen to a man. My question is, will that man be you? It will happen to a woman. Will that woman be you? It will happen to a child. Will that be your child? Because of your example. Will it be a church? And will that church be this church? Oh yes, it's easy to listen as the hypocrite listens. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? He must be talking about some other church, some other family, some other man, some other woman, some other child. But what if he's talking to you? And what if he's talking to me? Oh yes, we can try to build our house. And we can focus on the kitchen that our house might be fed. We can focus on the bedrooms that our children might have a place to lay their head. We can focus on that dining room table that we can all gather around and laugh and play games. And we can focus on the backyard so we can play under the dome of His creation. But Christ's greatest concern was the foundation. Do you call him Lord? And if the answer is yes, then why don't we obey? Oh, it strikes my heart.